You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to Radio MMT. Anne, how are you this afternoon? Hello, Kevin. I'm well. And hello to our lovely listener. Thanks for hanging out with us as we spend an hour swimming around in the waters of the macro economy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, um, uh, I'm just noticing something, Anne. I can actually see you quite clearly at, at the moment. Why don't you get new glasses? No, no, no. You know the Perspex <laughs> screen that they've had up in here? It's gone. In case you're wondering what I'm talking There's about. There's a real visual there. We've had a very big um, uh, Perspex screen uh, set up here for months and months and months and they've taken mm-hmm. it down because mm-hmm. apparently... COVID's over. It's yeah, all... you are looking a bit clearer, I yeah, just realised. Yeah. Now, uh, this week, what are we, we're going to be talking about stuff. What's, have you got an organised uh, kind of uh, format for today's show, So, so Kevin, this is your show. I'm relying entirely on mm. you and your pre-planning. Well, that's... Um, <laughs> this uh, could that's be ris- interesting. Risky business, risky <laughs> business indeed. I think we're going to be talking about... Um, surpluses and stuff because you know like there's this surplus going on and uh, Jim Chalmers is very excited about it mm-hmm. he loves you know uh, the numbers and stuff and so we're going to be having a bit of discussion about that because we don't think a surplus is that bloody exciting but he seems to think Apparently. it's fantastic so I spoke too soon a few shows ago when I thought he had given up the surplus obsession but he's as addicted as ever and and uh, there's going to tie in quite nicely with our letter from the Cape this week because... Mm -hmm. From economist Bill Mitchell. Bill Mitchell, because that's what he's talking about as well. So it's all sort of like it's it's a bit of a topic. So we're going to talk a bit about the surplus and... um, and then we're going to do a bit of a flashback because in a previous life we were unemployed workers fight back on this show uh, and that's a show we did for three years under that banner and yes. that was uh, our, our connection with uh, unemployment and underemployment and... Uh, unemployment activism. And uh, a certain report's just come out just recently. It's been an interesting week when it comes to RoboDebt. Yes, yeah. literally a week ago today was when um, Commissioner Catherine Holmes handed down her 990-page report yeah. from the Royal Commission into robo-debt. So we'll have to have a little look at what came out of that. Yeah, and no, I, was, I was watching Albanese and Shorten in a uh, conference straight after that and uh, they had a lot to say uh, and we'll talk a bit about that as well. What we should probably do, as we quite often do on this show, is um, let's have a listen to Bill Mitchell and uh, his um, Letter from the Cape. It's time for a Letter from the Cape with economist Bill, Bill Mitchell. Mitchell. 
Hello, I'm back with another letter from the Cape. The Australian Treasurer was in the media talking big about the latest financial data that shows the Australian government's fiscal surplus, the difference between its spending and the taxation revenue it receives, was larger than expected and quite possibly a record outcome. It was as if he had won a gold medal at some major sporting event. A fiscal surplus means that the government is taking more of its currency out of the non-government sector via taxation than it is putting into that sector via its spending initiatives. That non-government deficit must be financed overall by the non-government sector, liquidating some prior accumulated wealth. So a fiscal surplus amounts to destroying our wealth. What determines how we should assess that outcome is the context in which it has occurred, which in turn prompts us to ask, what is the purpose of fiscal policy? Is it to achieve some predetermined financial outcome, which is the way the Treasurer was thinking this week? Or should we think of the fiscal outcome as a result of pursuing other desirable objectives? When we explore these questions, we soon learn that government should not target a specific fiscal balance outcome, in part because government policy settings do not actually determine the outcome. Let's dig into that. Governments all around the world regularly release their forecasts and forward estimates of what the fiscal balance will be in the coming years. They even adopt voluntary fiscal rules which limit their discretion by imposing quantitative limits beyond which they claim it is dangerous to move. Much is made of these numbers in the media and they become ends in themselves. However, these practices typically represent a failure of government and are antithetical to what the role of fiscal policy should be which is to advance societal well-being. The fiscal outcome is determined by two broad forces. First, the discretionary decisions that the government takes in setting its fiscal policy, that is, levels of expenditure and tax rates. And second, the overall state of the economy. In relation to this second factor, we know that when the economy is performing badly, tax revenue falls because fewer people are working. And on the expenditure side, higher welfare payments go to workers who lose their jobs. The result is that the fiscal outcome moves to a higher deficit or smaller surplus depending on the starting position. So the government deficit can rise without any explicit change in government policy which means the almost hysterical cries from conservatives that the deficit is blowing out during a recession are just expressions of their ignorance because once the economy begins to recover again, the deficit automatically falls as more people are paying taxes and fewer are on income support payments. We call these impacts cyclical because they vary with the state of the economic cycle and do not signal any change in policy settings. They are also termed the automatic stabilisers because they function automatically 
without any change in government policy and act to stabilise total spending in both directions. How do they do that? First, as noted above, when the economy is moving into recession as non-government spending declines, either in growth terms or absolutely, the fiscal deficit rises. The rising fiscal deficit helps staunch the decline in private spending in the economy and attenuates the depth of the recession. Second, when an economy is overheating, the fiscal deficit falls or the government enters surplus because of the strong tax revenue and lower welfare payments. And this automatic contraction in net government spending helps ease spending pressures in the economy. You should appreciate that these stabilising effects are automatic. The government doesn't have to alter any policy settings for them to kick in. They are intrinsic to any tax and transfer structure that is sensitive to the economic cycle. Now, how does this make it unlikely that the government can achieve any particular fiscal outcome? While governments impose all sorts of voluntary rules on themselves, which constrain their fiscal latitude, the reality is that the spending and tax decisions that emerge out of the political process does not determine what the final spending and tax revenues will be each year, since these depend upon spending by the non-government sector due to the operation of automatic stabilisers. When non-government spending is weak, the fiscal deficit will rise and vice versa. So what should the government be doing with fiscal policy if not chasing numbers that continually elude them? Fiscal policy provides the tools that governments can use to achieve advances in well-being, social and environmental, which includes providing jobs for all those who want to work, providing first-class public infrastructure and services, including health, education and transport, and ensuring everybody can participate meaningfully in society. These areas of concern represent the goals that we want government to pursue on our behalf. We should assess the current fiscal position only with reference to how close the government is to achieving these goals. If they are successful, then the fiscal outcome is the appropriate one, regardless of whether there is a large, small or otherwise fiscal deficit recorded. The point is that the fiscal policy is there to achieve our broader goals. Once the mission is set, then it doesn't matter what the final fiscal outcome is, as long as the mission outcome is sustainable. So the current surplus that the Treasurer thinks is virtuous is anything but, once we factor in the state of our health and education systems, our poor public transport systems, the tardiness in dealing with the shift to renewables and the dramatic shortage of social housing, to name a few of the major problems besetting the nation. I'll expand on that next time. See you later and take care.
listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. That, Did you get any of that, Kevin? Yeah, yeah, I was paying attention. Now, the <laughs> first thing I think we need to explain is sometimes we just presume that everybody knows uh, all the terminology, etc. It's always good doing the language because you don't feel so intimidated by them all discussing this. You can actually understand what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. Fiscal. <laughs> when we're talking fiscal, we're talking about government spending. And taxing. And taxing. So there's two types of policy. There's monetary policy and fiscal policy. Fiscal policy is the government becoming involved in the economy. Monetary policy is the Reserve Bank raising and lowering interest rates. Mm -hmm. And uh, the ideology that we've had for the the last few decades is that the economy should be controlled by monetary policy Mm -hmm. and the government should stay out of the way. It shouldn't mess things up with their, their annoying fiscal policy. Yes. So when Bill's talking about fiscal policy, he's talking about the government spending and the government taxing. So the surplus or the deficit, we're talking about the budget, so we're talking about what they do over a year and they are taxing all year long and they are spending all year long. When they're taxing, they're taking money out of the economy. When they're spending, they're creating new money, putting it into the economy. And then at the end of the year, they add up everything that they did. And if they did more taxing, they'll have a surplus. And if they did more spending, they'll have a deficit. Yeah. So behind all that economic talk... Mm. Essentially, what he's saying is that a surplus or a deficit—it's neither here nor there. No. You know, it's 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 like it's the amount. Uh, it's just a number. I always say it's just a number that falls out of the barrel at the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, although I often argue that in our economy, um, it would be unusual for us to run uh, surpluses, certainly successive surpluses. If I saw that, I'd start to get a bit worried because. Well, Costello managed to do it. Yeah, and he left uh, Australians with the highest. Uh, private debt right. uh, that they've ever had and they're still trying to pay it off because mm-hmm. essentially, and we'll remind listeners again, that if it's a government surplus, it's a private sector deficit. It's the two sides of the uh, two sides of the balance sheet. If the government is taking money in taxes more than it's spending into the economy, it's shrinking the private sector. Right. And and but there's no point in chasing a particular number. That's mm. not the that's not the object of being in government. Mm. The object of being in government. This might sound a little surprising, Anne, but he, and uh, <laughs> I haven't heard this kind of uh, uh, conversation probably since the, uh, the mid-70s when Gough Whitlam was around, oh. is that if you're in government, you're supposed to be governing and looking after the well-being of your population. You would think, wouldn't you? That's the point of uh-huh. spending. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the point of spending and taxing and all, all the monetary policy and fiscal policy, etc. Mm. You're supposed to look after the people that, that, that elected you in there to say, hey, can you guys look after us? Can you guys make sure everything runs well? And that mm-hmm. means... Uh, the government spends on things like, you know, health and, and education and, and defence if they want to, you know. Uh, that's that's the object. The object is make sure everybody's okay. And at the end of the year, if you're all okay, you go, uh, did we make money or lose money this year? It doesn't really matter because it, it's it's irrelevant. That's right. In fact, you know, I wouldn't be so bothered by this chasing of surpluses that they do if it didn't get in the way of this well-being agenda or of this good governance that you're talking about. But the problem with them chasing these surpluses is that it actually stops them from spending when they need to spend. And that's what we're seeing right now. And so 
Running a surplus is both irrelevant because they don't really control the number and it's dangerous because they're not spending when they really should be spending. Like Bill was saying there, um, what in fact Randall Ray also said to us back in episode 9 of Radio MMT, which is that the government doesn't really control what the number is that comes out of the barrel. They have a little bit of control. So most of the spending that happens is what they call non-discretionary. In other words, it's already built into the system. It's built into the system through existing taxes and so on. Yeah, this, this, this is kind of like a, a, you have unemployment benefits is, is a good one to look at. Uh, you don't really know how much you're going to be spending on unemployment benefits as a forward projection uh, until you know exactly what the um, the business cycle is going to be like, whether mm. there's a pandemic that comes out. I mean, if you want to have a look at the classic example of, of how little control a government <laughs> has over its, its um, forward forecasts, yes. look at the Morrison government during COVID. They were planning a surplus. They, they were dead set, we are going to get this surplus. That was their sole mm-hmm. objective was to get their surplus and they landed the biggest <laughs> deficit in Australian history because things happen. Things right? happen. And yep. you have to look after your population. And, and as Bill said towards the end of his segment, there what's the point of running a surplus if you've got people homeless if your health system isn't isn't as good as it could be if 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 everything isn't as good as it can be there's no point running a surplus because Mm -hmm. you should be spending that money on the well-being of your right now they should be spending like mad on what we need to do to meet the climate challenge yeah and so they're pretty much throwing everyone under the bus in order to get this number Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev at 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne, Australia. So they've got this surplus which came about this year because of the taxation on the increased commodity prices. Because of the war. And also because there's higher employment in Australia at the moment, which means they're getting more income tax, which is a kind of tax you and I would say is not a great tax to have anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's another topic. Yeah. But they've managed to get this surplus. And what they could have done is, in fact, go back into deficit. They could have optionally done that and they could have done that by spending where we need the spending, which is into healthcare, so that we don't have nurses leaving in droves because they're understaffed and overworked, into aged care. (laughs) They could have been spending on getting us to 100% renewables as fast as we can, you know, electrify everything. They could have been doing all of the public transport, all of the bike infrastructure that we need. They could have been rejigging the Australia's economy to have a proper industrial policy. So all of that they're not doing yeah. <laughs> because... Because I think they've got to collect numbers in a computer for some strange reason. I mean, it's, mm. it's absolutely... It, it is insane, you know. Their mm. obsession with collecting numbers in a computer, the very same computer that makes the numbers in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no... There's no advantage in collecting a whole bunch of numbers and saying, oh, we've got this surplus. It, it doesn't It doesn't do anything. In fact, it has the opposite effect, as you're saying, if you're obsessed with trying to uh, reach that target uh, mm. and you mess up your, your, your mission statement, which is to look after your population. <laughs> People might not believe us that this is what they're doing there in Canberra, yelling at each other about the surplus. But If you don't believe you or, you or I am, let's, let's have a listen to the, the current treasurer who's supposed to be like somewhat progressive because he's in the Labor Party. Anyway, here's Jim Chalmers. Liberals and Nationals made a mess of the budget and we are cleaning it up. Our responsible budget management is rebuilding our nation's finances 
and leading to smaller deficits and less debt and lower interest costs. Now, a week before the budget was handed down on the 9th of May, the member for Hume issued a press release that said the test for this bu budget will be to balance the budget. Well, we are now eight days before the end of the financial year and we are on track to deliver the first surplus in 15 years, Mr Speaker. And what's clear is that we wouldn't be anywhere Order. near a surplus on my without our spending restraint, our savings. Now, when those opposite came to office, they promised a string of surpluses. They said, and I quote, we will deliver a surplus in our first year and every year after that. And we all know how that turned out, Mr Speaker. They went zero for nine donuts. Donuts, Mr Speaker. The great irony of Australian politics is the Liberals talk about surpluses and the Greens talk about social housing, and in the last decade neither has delivered any of either. In fact, Mr Speaker, those opposite delivered more consecutive deficits than any government since the 1920s. They delivered the biggest deficits since Federation, Mr Speaker. There was a decade of debt, a decade of deficit and a decade of disappointment. Responsible economic management and spending restraint. We take responsibility for cleaning up the mess that they left of the budget. So I'm not sure whether Chalmers really does not understand that a surplus is not something that the government is going to spend at a later date. It's not something that they're socking away into a savings account. And I sort of just wonder if they're more focused on just winning this battle of rhetoric. And this battle of rhetoric has been playing out since at least the mid-1970s. Why is it so important that he gets a surplus so that he can say that he's a good economic manager, so that they can say that Labor are good economic managers? And why do they want to be able to say that? So they can win the next election. So as long as we have an electorate, who believes that surpluses are a good thing and aren't in fact taking money away from them and stopping us doing what we need to do as a nation, then that's the game they're going to play. And this, and this is what we talk about when we say that Labor is captured by neoliberalism because this, this belief, uh, this irrational belief that surpluses are necessary is built around the, the neoliberal principle that a government should remove itself from the economy, that it should be run by the private sector, that uh, government should step well out of the way. And one very easy way to do that is to make sure that they run balanced budgets or surpluses because mm. if they have to do that, it restricts the amount that they're it's allowed to spend. It's a sneaky little way of stopping the government spending. And it's so ingrained into uh, into our way of thinking. I've got to say, when I was listening to that, and, and uh, like I, I was a member of the Labor Party for, uh, for 20 years, uh, and I still would still much prefer to have Labor um, uh, running this place than, than the, uh, the previous mob. Um, but they are captured by neoliberalism because... It's it's like cognitive dissonance or something. Mm, mm. Even if you get it, I still got a little bit of a uh, a little bit of an uplift to hear Jim Chalmers say that yeah, we run a surplus, you bastards. We, we you know we, we got one, <laughs> and it was and, and it's a, a competitive thing. It's a competition, it is, isn't it? But it's yeah. irrational, and and, uh, and and we need to break that narrative. And mm -hmm. playing that game is only reinforcing the neoliberal model. Mm. It's important to hear this from the from the mouths of the people who That's are controlling right. the situation. So this is um, Jim Chalmers talking again. Let's hear what he's got to say. Treasurer, Dr. Jim Chalmers, giving a talk on May 31st, 2023 at the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy. Uh, please, would you join me in giving a very warm welcome to the Honourable Dr. Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer.
morning, everybody. Thanks for the opportunity to spend uh, Wednesday morning of a sitting week with you here at the Crawford School. Hey, let's go swimming and not get wet. Hey, let's go gamble on a soccer bet. Let's go swim, let's not get wet. Let's go gamble on a soccer bet. Baby, get out of my life. Don't go yet. So that's the second part of the budget. The third part... Uh, goes to fiscal buffers. I mentioned before the big revenue upgrade in the budget. Uh, that obviously is uh, very important and very welcome, but what matters there is what you do with it. And what we tried to do is to provide the cost of living help and invest in the future, but also bank uh, a huge proportion of the upward revision to revenue. 87% over two budgets of the upward revision to revenue we've banked to the bottom line. done that for a couple of reasons. First of all, until recently the fastest growing cost in the budget was actually the interest on our debt and so what we've been able to do in this budget is avoid about $80 billion in interest debt, uh, uh, debt interest over the medium term. Also, we think we need to get the budget in much better nick to rebuild some of the buffers for uh, what might be a difficult period ahead. And so that's really the kind of third component of it. So there you go. That's from the horse's mouth. He's, he reckons, you know, this, we, we need to bank it. We need to bank What does the banking the surplus even mean? Oh. It's like, does he really think he's socking it away into some savings account that yeah. he's going to use down the track? Does he know what an appropriations bill is? Does, does he understand <laughs> that he actually has the power to create? He doesn't need to save. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's just think about this from an orthodox perspective. He mentioned the, the interest on, on the debt. On the debt. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we've talked a lot about bonds. And let's just summarise it by saying that uh, government debt equals government bonds. Okay, mm-hmm. so when the government uh, runs a deficit, it uh, issues bonds to that amount to the same value as the deficit, and uh, those bonds pay interest. Okay, and they're doing that as an optional extra. They don't have to do that, but they do. They do. Okay, so in reality, what that means is that the government is paying interest to bondholders. And that might be superannuation companies or overseas governments or whatever it is. It's actually injecting new money into the economy via the interest. Via yes. the interest, and that's what that's what they're concerned about, saying that this uh, this interest payment is ballooning and is and is getting out of control. One of the largest uh, purchases of bonds in the recent um, uh, issuance of bonds over COVID was, of course, the Reserve Bank of Australia. So a lot of the interest that they are worried about is... Um, They're paying it to the Reserve Bank, are they? That, well, yeah, so, But this is the point. So if you have a look at the, the bonds that have been issued, hmm. a, a very large part, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to put a number on it, but it's, it's significant. By, In the billions we're talking. Yeah, yeah, is owned by the Australian government. So the government has to pay itself interest and it can use that interest to pay the interest that it's being... Ch- it cancels out, <laughs> Anne. <laughs> It's all it's all crazy once you understand what's really going on. It has to pay itself interest, and it can pay itself interest with the interest that it's earned from its own bonds. 
even by their own orthodox terms, okay, if you believe that was a problem, and mm. you and I don't, mm-hmm. but if you did think that interest payments were a problem, because they own uh, so much of their own debt and they are paying themselves mm. the interest, that means they can use that interest to pay themselves the interest. It's circular. <laughs> it cancels it out. It's of no consequence. So there is no ballooning interest because they own their own debt. It's ridiculous. Oh, well, well, the whole bond issuing does underpin the finance sector. So it does give the whole finance industry, including pension funds and hedge funds and so on, it does give them a safe form of income yes. because they, they know that the government will always be able to pay that interest. But, you know, I think if he was really worried about paying the interest on the debt, I think all they would have to do is just not obey the full funding rule, which says when you have a deficit, you will also issue treasury bonds to the same amount. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's a it's a pointless exercise. And, and mm. what, what happens if, if um, uh, the government doesn't pay itself back? Nothing. Yeah. Uh, Although I do hear people who have half an idea of what's going on. I have heard many people say that the problem with spending more is the debt. So a lot of people understand that the government creates the money, but then they also are worried about the debt. And it's by continuing to issue these bonds that we are, you know, we're kind of conning a lot of people that this really is a debt when we know it's not a debt, it is in fact the money supply as yeah. we are learning in our yes. MMT courses. Indeed, indeed. Um, uh, and, and if you look in history, there's also debt jubilees where they just sort of go, look, the debt's becoming... Uh, out of control, it's becoming an impediment to uh, society. That's been something which has happened historically. Yes, but I guess this kind of will come to our next topic that we'll be talking about after the break here. Yeah. Because the federal government, who is the currency issuer, any debt that they carry is not a problem. But debt that anyone else carries in the economy, including you and me, including businesses, including unemployed people who are given robo-debts, anyone who's given a debt, that could be the problem because they're not the currency issuer and they have to find the money to pay that debt and they can get into big trouble with it. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, we'll uh, come back to uh, the consequences of the neoliberal model after a a little break and we'll start talking about robo-debt. You're with Anne and Kev on Radio MMT. At 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. And wherever you get your podcasts. Economics for the rest of us. Channel 9's A Current Affair looked back to the 5th of December 2016 when a statement about Centrelink's debt recovery scheme was made by Alan Tudge, then robot service, I I mean, sorry, I mean, then human services minister. We will find you, we will track you down, and you will have to repay those debts and you may end up in prison. This was the scheme that illegally, we have found, clawed back almost $2 billion in payments from around 433,000 past and current Social Security recipients. There has been an overwhelming success in terms of the new debt recovery system. Christian Porter, then Social Services Minister, on ABC Background Briefing, March 
2017. Monies are being identified and being paid back to the taxpayer, indeed 300 million so far, with a tiny complaint rate. Then Human Services Minister Alan Tudge on ABC's Background Briefing, March 2017. Fair and reasonable to the taxpayer who is paying for the welfare system in its entirety. Scott Morrison, our former Prime Minister, giving evidence at the RoboDebt Royal Commission. This was a budget which was a third of the federal budget. Of course, the social welfare system, the social security system, is paid for by taxpayers and the system needs to be fair to to those who receive benefits as well as those who pay for them, the taxpayers. And that was a, a very strong view of our government. You referred to uh, the smallest changes to entitlements and programs can have serious implications for taxpayers. You're talking about in a financial sense. Of course. Um, You ensure integrity of a program to protect the program because you care about the people who most need that program. Serious implications for taxpayers, those who pay for them, the taxpayers. Taxpayers' resources, taxpayers' resources, taxpayers' money being paid out in benefits, billions of dollars, to give back to taxpayers, it's their money, a billion dollars of taxpayers' money every year, more than a billion dollars, one billion dollars is an extraordinarily large amount of money, impacts on the taxpayer, billion dollars overpaid every single year of taxpayers' money and more than $100 billion that are paid out in taxpayers' money to people every year. Taxpayers' money. We will find you, we will track you down, and you will have to repay those debts, and you may end up in prison. Alan Tudge. So let's talk about um, robo-debt, shall we, Anne? Mm -hmm. Uh, The report from the Royal Commission... Came out on Friday, last Friday, a week ago. A 900-page-plus report. Let's let's just do a a brief summary, just in case uh, we've forgotten what all this is about. Robo-debt was introduced... Back in about 2015, yes, 16? Yes, it came out in a little pilot study and then they started rolling it out for real. And it was done under the uh, Scott Morrison's watch. He was the, the minister at the time. He managed to be, and amongst all of this, social services minister and then the treasurer and then the prime minister. So he had three roles while this was all playing out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, in essence, um, the scheme was a income averaging scheme. So it was targeted at underemployed people, which is to say people uh, receiving benefits who had some work. So uh, if anybody's been on unemployment benefits uh, or some sort of um, uh, welfare payment, you'll know that uh, you might have one or two weeks work, uh, you earn good money, uh, and then the job finishes because it's casual and you're, you're back on the uh, the rock and roll, back on mm, the doll. Mm. Uh, and you're allowed to. You're allowed to earn good money. Well, you, you just declare the amount of money that you're earning so that the doll goes down and then it goes back up again. So this hit casual workers hardest, I think. So if you're getting unemployment benefits and you were not able to find paid work, you're actually safer than people who were trying really hard to make ends meet by working. Yeah, so what they did was uh, by uh, income averaging, they had a look at the income that you'd earned and they averaged it out out over the period. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and then hit you up with the bill and chased it aggressively. And this all started under Morrison's watch. Uh, I've got a little um, article here from around that time. I've been reading the, the New Daily. So it says, Former Prime Minister Scott Morrison has rejected completely findings that he misled Cabinet on the legality of the robo-debt scheme following the release of the Royal Commission's final report on Friday. Mm. The report states that Mr Morrison, who was Social Services Minister from May 2014 until September 2015, allowed Cabinet to be misled by not inquiring why the Department ignored its own suggestions from 2015 that using an averaging of income required legislation to be introduced. So he knew that it it was unlawful, and mm. to make it lawful, they would have to pass a law. I think at the time, they probably wouldn't get an amendment through Parliament. So uh, he knew the proposal still involved income averaging. Only a few weeks previously, he had been told of that caveat. Nothing had changed in the proposal, and he had done nothing to ascertain why the caveat no longer applied, the report said. He failed to meet his ministerial responsibility to ensure that the Cabinet was properly informed about what the proposal actually entailed and to ensure that it was lawful. So this this kind of displays uh, an ideology. If you compare the, the way that they are using people on unemployment benefits mm. uh, as a, a scapegoat, something to be kicked around, you know. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares about the unemployed. We can use those. So they're chasing this surplus. And this is what we're talking about before, where you've got a government hell-bent on trying to... Right. You have to look at why were they so driven? Why were they so motivated to be clawing back money from the most vulnerable sector of your population. And remember, compare this to uh, the $12 billion that was overspent on JobKeeper during COVID that nobody bothered about. And this scheme was supposed to claw back between 2 to $4 billion. So, So this is a, a government that's hell-bent on chasing a number, mm. has totally disregarded its uh, purpose, which is to look after the well-being of its population. Mm-hmm. It's chosen the most vulnerable, the mm-hmm. unemployed, and it's decided to boot them around, mm-hmm. make their lives hell in this quest to try and save a few coin. Mm. Uh, and at the very same time that this is going on, this is when we have the Stage 3 tax cuts coming in. So the Stage 3 tax cuts uh, are going to be worth $24 billion in their first year. Uh, Their argument is we need to have tax dollars to run a surplus. We think that's important. Uh, You and I uh, regard that as a as a nonsense. Mm -hmm. But but that's not their argument. Their their argument is no. We need to we need to run a surplus, and a surplus means you've raised more taxes than you've spent into the economy. And and I would have thought that if uh, if you want to keep your tax base going, the last thing you'd do (laughs) is let the the people with the most money off uh, some tax obligation. And so what they're saying is. Uh, we're going to give away $24 billion worth of, of tax receipts in one year, and that accounts to nearly $250 billion over the 10-year period that they're looking at, mm. so that we can go and chase $90 million and, and, and kick the shit out of some doll bludgers. Mm-hmm. But he, it's it's just... Uh, on the numbers, it doesn't make a lot of sense to chase your surplus that way, which makes me think there is another agenda, and of course there is, which is that... Um, if you look at how unemployed people are treated generally... Robo-debt isn't out of character with the sort of uh, treatment that unemployed people get in the system at the moment because what you need to do with unemployment benefits is make it as difficult and as demeaning and as demoralising and as shameful as possible. And why do you want to do that? 
because you want your employed people to be scared of becoming unemployed so that they don't arc up in the workplace demanding better wages and conditions. That keeps um, wages down, that increases profits for their favourite people, which are the, uh, the owners of business. That's right. So so this robo-debt, it's, it was just the worst manifestation of an entire system for how we deal with unemployed people. And of course, we would promote the alternative, which we call the job guarantee. Um, but, you know, we still have work for the dole and people are still being killed and maimed on work for the dole sites. And we still have people receiving unemployment payments under a system known as targeted compliance, if you can believe, which is just as horrendous to deal with every day. And RoboDebt was sort of like the extreme um, like the extreme version of this attitude towards unemployed people. And also, I haven't heard a lot in the media yet about the ideology around having a social safety net. And we know that the neoliberal approach to a social safety net is to not have one. Yeah. So <laughs> Basically, you know, it's your own fault to victim blame. Yeah, it's, it's... yeah that dull bludgeon bashing has been going on since about the 1970s quite consistently. And one of my favourite quotes coming out of that report was the um, Commissioner Catherine Holmes saying, anti-welfare is easy populism, useful for campaign purposes. It is not recent, nor is it confined to one side of politics. These attitudes are set by politicians who need to abandon for good in every sense the narrative of taxpayer versus welfare recipient. So I just love the fact that she said that and I just want to throw rose petals at that woman's feet because she is talking about the divide and conquer policy that the government has towards workers. So if you can divide workers into your lazy, dull, bludging, no goods who are using your taxpayer money and you can divide your other set of workers as being hardworking, honest, upright taxpayers. And the thing is too, when... um, Catherine Holmes is talking about easy populism. What she is looking at is how um, you take a group of marginalised people, and this has been done not just with unemployed workers, it's also been done with First Nations people, it's been done with asylum seekers, it's been done with homeless people. You take a group of marginalised people, you demonise them and you stigmatise them. And why do you do that? So that you can look like you are doing something so that you can win the next election. So there's lots going on to create this robo-debt phenomenon. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Uh, there's another art, um, article I have here from the New Daily uh, talking about the public service, and, and this is the institutionalisation of, of these horrendous sort of ideologies. So it goes, uh, the phenomenal rise of Scott Morrison's most favoured bureaucrat and RoboDebt's architect appears set to end with a crash. But the government is grappling with a more difficult question following the release of the Royal Commission report that found the Canberra public servants behind the multi-billion dollar public policy disaster had been dishonest from its outset how to fix a soulless public service. 
The Defence Department has refused to comment on reports that Major General Catherine Campbell has taken personal leave <laughs> from a near $1 million a year job she moved to shortly before the inquiry was established uh, into the scheme she had overseen. Uh, even after RoboDebt was declared illegal and shameful by the Federal Court, Miss Campbell was promoted to a plum job overseeing foreign affairs, awarded official honours and lauded by the former Prime Minister as one of the finest public officials of our public service. Mm. Yeah, really? The, the returns were, were bugger all. Uh, you put 500,000 people odd under a lot of pressure, um, caused enormous harm, and, and this is worth a million dollars a year and, and, and honours. Wasn't it the AUKUS contract too, oh. that she was, she was in charge oh, of? Probably. God, you know. yeah, yeah. Can I tell you another Catherine Campbell story? Yeah. Which was in The Age on July the 8th, and it was by Rachel Clune. This article was headlined, PwC... Our friends, right. Price Waterhouse Coopers, repaying almost one million dollars in robo debt consulting fees. So they've gone ahead and decided to repay this nearly one million dollar amount that they received back in 2017 to evaluate the robo debt scheme. Now Bill Shorten welcomed this move. He's now our government services minister. And we are unclear whether Shorten's department had actually contacted PwC before they offered to return the money. But what was interesting about PwC being hired on back in 2017 was that the firm never handed the department its final report. Instead, what they did was offer them a PowerPoint presentation. So that was the cartoon version that the minister got back then. And um, even though they had been asked to write a report, apparently um, nobody really wanted to see it. And finally, the commission got hold of this thing. It was 100 pages. And what it revealed was that RoboDebt would not deliver the projected budget savings. It revealed that there was a significant percentage of inaccurate debts being produced. And um, we're talking over 50%. And also that the online process of sending out the debts had been a failure. And this is what the uh, RoboDebt Royal Commission says. The rational inference is that although the report was contracted for and all but finalised, Ms Campbell formed the view that its detail as to the deficiencies of the scheme was damaging and that it would be better for the department's reputation and her own if it was not produced. So they just shelve a report that tells you everything that you need to know. Well, oh, we don't like the sounds of that, so let's not have that report. Let's put it on a PowerPoint presentation, therefore there'll be no record of it. <laughs> and it cost them $800,000 to do this. When you think about it, how many unemployed people do you think have managed to rot the system for $800,000? Not too many, I would say. Jeez, you know, and I do feel sorry for people working in uh, Department of Social... Government services a now. Imagine being on the front line of that, dealing with all these complaints coming in. You'd know that... Oh. This scheme is, is, is bullshit. You'd, you'd know that it's just wrong. In fact, um, some of the best reporting I have seen or heard on the robo-debt, and I highly, highly recommend that people go to the 7am podcast. So if you've got a podcast app or you're online, 7am, the letter 7. Uh, journalist Rick Morton has been doing a series on that podcast called Inside Robo-Debt, and he did interview one of the frontline staff who they also were suffering under this scheme as much as the people that they were dealing the debts out to. So I really recommend people listen to that because you get a real feel for the absolute scourge that this thing was.
you know, weaponizing a bureaucracy against your own population. It's up there with the intervention. It's up there with internment camps after the Second World War. Like, no holds barred. This was one of the most disgusting episodes in Australian history. So go listen to that um, that podcast. You'll get a real feel for it. And the other thing we can take from this is the, the response that we've had from, from Morrison and from Dutton and the rest of it. There's not been one apology. There's been no, oh, sorry, nothing, no contrition. It's like... Um, which tells you that they've learnt nothing. They'll do it again tomorrow. Uh, the only the only reason they wouldn't do it tomorrow is because they might get sprung. But <laughs> that, but they'll do anything. No, the lack of empathy and the lack of contrition just says to you that we want systems in place that don't allow people like this into such powerful positions. And of course, you know what we remember from our MMT position on all of this is that you do not have to chase surpluses. And this idea that you need to save money, especially in the human services area, is just complete misunderstanding of how you run an economy and how you govern That's a That's a very nation. good point, Anne. This, this episode shows how evil that kind of misguided, um, uh, just the ignorance of what you're supposed to be doing in government and the harm that you can cause when, you, when you've got your priorities all ass about. Uh, it, you couldn't get any clearer example than the robo-dead thing. Yeah. I think we need to listen to a song. Here's a song uh, by uh, Brown Spirits, and I can't see what it's called, because, um, but I'll tell you afterwards. Anyway, uh, Brown Spirits. So that was uh, Brown Spirits with a song that the last word is optimist and I can't see the rest of it because of reasons, technical reasons. <laughs> Not, your glasses haven't fogged up. <laughs> Brown Spirits is one of these bands, like uh, I suddenly find out about them and listen to this stuff and, and they're great, you know, I sort of go, how come I've never heard of them before? Mm. Um, now, look, we did a, uh, an interview with Alan Cole not so long ago. We're hoping Who to get that. is a financial analyst with the ABC and other news outlets. Yeah, um, and, and we thought that um, Alan Cole was a massive MMT fan and he certainly uh, understands MMT. Mm. But it was an interesting interview. He, um, yeah, he's not quite in the same place that we would be, probably, no, on a few no. things. Oh, here's a little snippet to, just to give you a taster. So we've got this kind of bit of a paradox in a way. If you look at the aggregate ABS data, you'll see that the amount of household savings is extremely high. But because of the 12 rate hikes we've already had, there's a tremendous amount of distress as well. So you've got this kind of barbell situation where on the one hand there's a huge amount of savings and people, a lot of people are swimming in money. At the other end of the scale there's tons of people who are lining up at food bank uh, to get by. And uh, I think this is in a sense an extreme example of what monetary policy does which is to increase inequality. Lunacy, Anne. Absolute lunacy. Well, I look forward to hearing more from Alan Collar on a future episode because we did have quite a nice long chat. Yeah, no, and it was good. It was uh, it was very interesting. But um, uh, Vicky's here for Mafalda, and um, we've got to get moving. So uh, till next time, Anne. Next time, Kevin. Yes, that was the end of our live broadcast. Then we received the latest letter from the Cape by economist Bill Mitchell. In this letter. Bill reminds us that robo-debt sits in a history of the ill-treatment of unemployed workers. 
So, of course, we had to add it in. Here's Bill Mitchell at his finest. Hello, here is another episode in the Letter from the Cape series. In 1996, French journalist and essayist Viviane Forestier published a book, L'Horaire Economique, The Economic Horror, which was a devastating critique of global capitalism and the abandonment of the commitment to full employment by governments around the world. She noted that the rise of the free market narrative was reinforced by approaches by government that sought to alienate the unemployed. The book ventures into the notion that governments have made the unemployed dispensable to capitalist production and profit and have instead been content only to keep them just alive. But soon, why would it not be implausible to declare this growing group of disadvantaged citizens totally irrelevant? A black future then unfolds. It was a prescient reflection of the times. The interests of capital took advantage of the chaos associated with the oil price crisis and the ensuing inflation in the mid-1970s to argue that governments must abandon their commitment to full employment and instead use mass unemployment as a policy tool, a weapon, to discipline trade union wage demands. By creating a large pool of idle labour, employers could suppress wage demands and generate higher profits. This was the start of the neoliberal era, and it has been spectacularly successful in achieving shifts in national income towards capital. We were told then that there was no alternative, the Tina mantra. The path was set, and we have followed it ever since. But at the time, the deliberate creation of mass unemployment created a political problem for governments. The long period after the Second World War of full employment, job security and growing real wages had conditioned citizens to see unemployment as an avoidable evil and to understand that governments had the policy capacity to ensure no one who wanted to work would go without a job. So the problem then became how to handle the public perception that mass unemployment was a policy failure. The solution adopted was to use divide and conquer strategies to vilify the unemployed and to shift the focus from a systematic failure to create enough jobs to one where the unemployed were to blame for their joblessness. They were characterised as idle and lazy and a pernicious nomenclature was created to reinforce the message. Dole bludgers and all of that. The blame the victim approach gave the government cover and it has been all downhill from there. A new industry was created, the unemployment management industry, and in Australia the government employment service that had provided excellent support to anyone who was looking for jobs was privatised. A host of mendicant private job service providers arose who adopted a culture that the unemployed were just a vehicle to generate profit from. And that system was extended by the Australian government into a vicious and punitive system under the guise of mutual responsibility that made it difficult for the unemployed to remain on income support, 
even as the income support provided was increasingly below the accepted poverty line. Then the sociopaths in government decided to create a system where income support recipients who might find part-time work to supplement their income, which was allowable under the system, were assessed by a computer algorithm to be in breach of their eligibility and debts were raised. Debt collectors were sent in. People committed suicide under the constant harassment to repay the debts. While this system was tyrannical, it was also illegal under Australian law. And we now know that most of the debts were fabrications of the government because the algorithm was flawed. Last week, the Royal Commission into this scandal reported and found the conduct of government at the time to be venal, illegal and lacking in humanity. We are waiting to see which of the politicians and top public sector employees who lied and knowingly continued this scheme will be punished. I'm not holding my breath. Vivian Forrestair saw this abuse of the unemployed clearly and like her, we should demand that it ends. But then, the divide and conquer strategies deployed by governments that began in the 1970s have co-opted us into being part of this abuse. Unless we start to understand that the government can always ensure that there are enough jobs for all who desire to work, we will remain pawns in this scandalous abuse of the most disadvantaged citizens in our society. The fact that governments continue to use mass unemployment as a tool to advantage the employers is one of the scandals of the neoliberal era and is in no small part the result of our indifference to the calamities faced by the most fragile in our society. That's it for today. See you later. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good, and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, have you heard of the theory of comparative advantage or the quantity theory of money or the loanable funds theory? Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole range of, like, macroeconomic music that I could bring into the show. Yeah, yeah, but we really need to do marginal productivity theory, not to mention the natural rate of unemployment and the money multiplier. You've got a pretty good singing voice. I play bass. <laughs> Bill, Bill, he plays guitar. I reckon we could form a macroeconomic band. Like, we could deliver this whole message by music. 
Well, we could call the band the permanent income hypothesis or the Ricardian equivalence or rational expectations. I think we're onto something here. We're trying to make macroeconomics more interesting to the masses. We're going to like form this band and sing it to them. And we're going to, we're going to bring the economists in. We're going to get musical. We're going to do the regression theory of money to music. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.